Krishna Haridas Takur Kija Prem Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Doit Gadadhar Shri Vasudeva Bhakti Vrindavan Shri Radha Krishna Govinda Shri Shankaranda Radha Kanigiri Govardhan Kija Vrindavan Dham Kija Tur Dham Kija Navadvi Mayapur Dham Kija Jagannathuri Dham Kija Ganga Mai Jumuna Devi Kija Bhakti Devi Kija Tosi Maharani Kija Samaveti Bhakti Vrindavan Kija Gaur Prabhu All glories to the assembled Krishna. All glories to the assembled Krishna. All glories to the assembled Krishna. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Sri Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya
Tva. After saying this, Saha, he, Nirpaha, the King Bhagirata, Devam, unto Lord Shiva, Tapasa, by executing austerities, Atosayat, pleased, Shivam, Lord Shiva, the all auspicious, Kalenam, by time, Alpiasa, which was not very long. Rajan, O King, Tasya, unto him Bhagirata. Ishaha, Lord Shiva, Cha, indeed, Ashu, very soon. Atushita became satisfied. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. After saying this, Bhagirata satisfied Lord Shiva by performing austerities. O King Parikshit, Lord Shiva was very quickly satisfied with Bhagirata. Purport. The words Ashvatutashita indicate that Lord Shiva was satisfied very soon. Therefore, another name for Lord Shiva is Ashutosha. Materialistic persons become attached to Lord Shiva because Lord Shiva bestows benedictions upon anyone and everyone very quickly, not caring to know how his devotees prosper or suffer. Although materialistic persons know that materialistic happiness is nothing but another side of suffering, they want it. And to get it very quickly, they worship Lord Shiva. We find that materialists are generally devotees of many demigods, especially Lord Shiva and Mother Durga. They do not actually want spiritual happiness, for it is almost unknown to them. But if one is serious about being happy spiritually, he must take shelter of Lord Vishnu. As the Lord personally demands, Sarva Dharma Prichaja, Mamekam Sharnam Braja, Amtam Sarva Abandon all varieties of religion and just surrender unto me. I shall deliver you from all sinful reactions. Do not fear. Bhagavad Gita 1866. After saying this, Bhagavad satisfied Lord Shiva by performing austerities. O King Brigitte, Lord Shiva was very quickly satisfied with Bhagirata. So, of course, here Bhagirata was not really looking for material happiness. Bhagirata was trying to save the world from the force of Mother Ganga, and he was interested in bringing Mother Ganga in order to save his ancestors and bring auspiciousness to everyone. So, this particular principle doesn't really apply to Bhagirata. But the principle is a generally solid one, that if you want something very quickly, then uh, there's one method, and if you want the real authentic thing, then there's another method. So what to want and where to get it? I think this is the big question in life, huh? What should I want, and how should I go about getting it? How do I define success? What will bring me happiness? Probably speaking a lot here in this purport about happiness. How to get happiness. John Lennon talks about how when he was a little child, the teacher asked all the children at school, please write what you want to be when you grow up. So John Lennon wrote, I want to be happy. 
writing when the teacher collected the papers, she said, you didn't understand the assignment. And John Lennon said, no, you didn't understand life. So, and when Prabhupada was asked in South America, what is the purpose of life? What was his answer? To enjoy. To enjoy. He said, Ananda. That the purpose of life is to be happy. Ananda maya be shut. We are all happiness-seeking creatures. The scientists even know that. They call it the pleasure principle. Even if you take a very entity in a very low form of life, they will try to achieve happiness. And they will try to avoid distress. So I compare this to the heat-seeking missiles. Right? So in the wartime, they have these weapons that seek out heat, so they'll find the engine of the airplane or the engine of the tank, and they'll go right for the heat. So we are pleasure-seeking beings. We're always looking, where is happiness? Where is happiness? Where is happiness? And this starts immediately, right? immediately. As soon as we're born, we're looking, where is happiness? Where is happiness? Of course, when you're born, happiness is very simple. Happiness is, you know, a dry nappy and your mommy's holding you and you have some milk in your tummy and that's kind of happiness. But this principle that we're looking for happiness is there. And we, these are the questions in life. How do I find it? Where do I go? What's the way to achieve it? So here Srila Prabhupada's contrasting materialistic happiness and spiritual happiness, right? Materialistic happiness and spiritual happiness, and how do you get material happiness and how do you get spiritual happiness? So he gives something very simple here. He says that material happiness is nothing but another side of suffering. Material happiness is nothing but another side of suffering. And he also says that spiritual happiness is almost unknown to the materialist. So for most people in this world, all they know is material happiness. They don't even know that there is a material happiness and a spiritual happiness. They don't even understand that, those are, that that's an option. They don't even see it as a choice. It's like something written on their menu with invisible ink. You know, and they, they can't even see that it's there. They, they, I'm, I'm sure you all know that we have certain inborn biases. Yes, you're aware of that? And that it's not that what we perceive creates our beliefs, but what we believe creates what we see. Do you all know that? Are you aware of that? So that's one of the things that they teach you in psychology. So there was a very famous experiment done in, I think, the 1940s with playing cards. So with playing cards, you know, there's four suits. There's the red hearts, there's the red diamonds, there's the black clubs, and there's the black spades. Everybody knows that from cards? Maybe some of you have never seen cards. Have some idea what they look like. So they had these volunteers, and they were showing them cards very quickly and asking them to name the suit. So they're saying, okay, that's a, a heart, that's a spade, that's a club, etc. Now, unbeknownst to the volunteers, they put some weird cards in there. They put some red spades and some black hearts. But people didn't identify those because they weren't expecting to see them. So when they'd see the red spade, they'd either say it was a heart or a spade. They wouldn't say, oh, there's something funny there. And then they gradually slowed down the time they were showing the cards. And at a certain point, each of 75% of the participants in the study said, what was that? And then at a certain point, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's a black heart. 
But it had to, for many people, it had to go very, very slowly before they even said, hey, what was that? And 25% of the participants never said, what was that, no matter how slowly it went. So we see what we expect to see. We already have our set of beliefs, we already have our ideas about what is reality, and we perceive things according to that reality. So someone in material consciousness doesn't even perceive that there is such a thing as spiritual happiness. They don't even know that it's an option. So someone in material, in material consciousness, all they see is varieties of happiness according to the modes of nature. And even then, if somebody's really in the mode of ignorance, they don't even perceive happiness and passion or happiness and goodness. Because someone in ignorance, Krishna explains, they don't know what to do and what not to do. They don't know what's binding and liberating. They're always striving in the wrong direction. So someone in the mode of ignorance doesn't even perceive happiness and passion as happiness. They don't even see it. What to speak of happiness and goodness? That appears, it doesn't make any sense to them at all. And spiritual happiness is invisible. So let's look at these different kinds of happiness. So happiness in the mode of ignorance is actually not happiness at all. So I was just reading in the third canto, Prabhupada said, in the mode of ignorance, there's neither enjoyment nor knowledge. There's actually no enjoyment. It's kind of like the animals. So to what extent are the animals really enjoying? You know, you're out in the cold, you're out in the rain, and you're just kind of looking among the grass for some little worm. You know, is that really happiness? I remember when I was I think, a teenager and I was reading about the uprising of the black slaves in America and one of the main people who was leading this uprising was put into jail. And in jail they had just a bucket for their toilet and so the bucket was all, you know, and there were flies there also. And he looked at the flies and he said, uh, the flies don't realize that they're suffering. They think, oh, I'm very happy in this toilet bucket. But actually they're suffering. From an objective position, they're suffering. And he said, many people in slavery, they don't even understand they're suffering, because that's all that they know. But that doesn't mean they're not suffering. Because he was trying to decide, should I work to free people, even if those people weren't asking to be free, even if those people said, you know, our life is all right. So happiness in the mode of ignorance is very much like that. It's like the happiness of the fly in the, in the filthy place. You know, the happiness of intoxication, which is the happiness of poisoning your body. It's like the happiness of being sick. You know, so when a person's sick, you can't think clearly. If you have a high fever, you may be hallucinating and having delusions, right? You can't function properly, you can't digest properly, you can't walk properly. So people take these intoxicants to imitate being sick. <clears throat> Strange. So is that happiness? Is that actually happiness? Or happiness in the mode of ignorance is you cheat people, you insult people. I can be very expert in insulting people. It's one of the happinesses in the mode of ignorance. Ah, I insulted them. <laughs> and I did it so expertly. You know, I was able to cheat them. Just like thieves, when they see an elderly person, you know, going with a walker, they think, ah, oh, good target. Here's somebody I can exploit. Here's somebody I can steal from. So is that happiness? Does one get any happiness from, from taking from others and exploiting others and cheating others? I mean, I'm sure all of us, at least my, I don't know, probably none of you, but I'm sure all of us in our life have sometimes found some happiness from insulting somebody else. What does that feel like? 
remember what it feels like? Does it feel like happiness? It feels like kind of in the heart. Now, if that's all you know, you'll think that that's happiness. Some kind of sense that I am powerful. Siddham, I'm perfect, powerful, and happy. But it's not anything you would call joy, is it? Is that anything you would call joy? Yes, I insulted that person. I got back at that that foolish person. Is there any joy in that? Anything to really call happy. But if that's all you know, if you don't know anything else, if you're just in the mode of ignorance, you take that as happiness. There's not really any happiness in there at all. Now, the reason that there's not any happiness in there at all, this is, this is kind of subtle and implied here by Srila Prabhupada talking about the Sarvadharma and Parichaja verse. You know, first I thought, well, why is Prabhupada quoting that verse in this purport? Is because in the mode of ignorance, there's no surrender. There's no giving. There's no sacrifice. There's only taking. That's what crime is. Crime is taking, yes? If we want to define what is criminal, something criminal means that I take something from someone else without their permission. I use some sort of force. I take your money when you don't want to give it to me by force. I take your life when you don't want to give it to me by force. Take your house, take sexual pleasure from you. I take something from you by force when you're not willing to give it. I'm not giving anything in exchange. I'm just taking. I'm only taking. And it's all about who? Me. It's all about me. And in ignorance, one sees that everyone else is simply an object for their enjoyment. One doesn't even really see separate living entities. It's almost an anamoya consciousness. That, you know, everything is just when that uh, king, Sodas, in the Bhagavatam, was cursed to become a man-eater. It said that all of a sudden he looked around the world and he said, Oh, food. Right? Before he had seen, oh, there's a person, there's a person, and then all of a sudden, oh, food. Everything is for me. So happiness in the mode of ignorance, there's only taking. All I'm doing is taking. I'm not giving. The deeper you are into ignorance, the more there's this consciousness of I'm only taking and it's all about me. And there's no sacrifice, there's no surrender. There's not even a sacrifice or surrender on you know, a normal platform of paying your taxes to the government or taking care of a wife, taking care of a husband, you know, serving the boss. There's not even that level of surrender. Oh, we were recently, where were we? Oh, we were in um, Venice, and we took my, my grandson around to show him Venice. So as we're going through the city, the city is like, if you've ever been in Venice, it's like a big outdoor mall. The whole city of Venice is just a big outdoor mall with some bridges, you know. And everyone has their little shops, but then there's also the street peddlers that they put their piece of cloth on the street, right, and they put their knockoff purses or watches, right? And the whole time that they're selling, what are they doing? Anyone know what they're doing constantly while they're selling on the street? They're looking over their shoulder constantly. You ever seen animals do this? It's a squirrel they're eating. You know, and they're always looking around. 
Could you imagine that? Could you imagine it at breakfast for Sodom? Right? If our principle was take as much off the other person's plate as possible, you know, so you're sitting there with your plate and always where are the other people going to take my, my prasadam away? And so because they weren't paying their taxes to the government, therefore they were constantly in a state of fear. This is happiness in the mode of ignorance. You know, and they're thinking at the end of the day, oh, I made so much money without paying taxes, but all day they're in a state of fear. Imagine what that does to their health even. Imagine what it does to be in anxiety constantly all day. It would be a lesser price to pay your taxes to the government. So that's the mode of ignorance. You don't give even taxes. You don't even have an honest business. So no happiness. So then mode of passion, Prabhupada was saying in the third canto, mode of passion is not much knowledge, but material happiness. So material happiness is basically experienced in the mode of passion. And the mode of passion, of course, Rajagun, Raja means king. So we think not like some medieval European king, but the Vedic kings, where they were very righteous, you know, very honorable. So the idea of the mode of passion is, okay, I want happiness, but I'm going to do some kind of surrender. I'm going to do some kind of sacrifice to get it. So someone in the mode of passion is starting to approach this they're starting to have some sharnam. They're surrendering to someone. They're surrendering to the government, who's a representative of God. Right? I was just reading in Chaitanya Charitamrita how when the Nawab Hussain Shah came to Sanatana Goswami and said, well, you look pretty healthy to me. How come you're not coming and doing your work? My physician said you're healthy. So it said there that Sanatana Goswami and all of the brahmanas they all respected the Nawab. They showed him external respect. And Prabhupada was saying, why? You know, the Nawab was very violent, even by his own account. He said to Sanatana Goswami, you know, I'm not running the kingdom, I'm just going around killing living entities. So you have to run the kingdom for me. So although by his own account he wasn't a very nice person, why did they show him respect? And Shiva Prabhupada says that if someone's in a position of authority like that, they have some grace of God. They've been empowered by God. So therefore, they're shown some respect. So someone in the mode of passion, at least they're giving their taxes to the government, who is a representative of God. They're surrendering, they're taking their sex pleasure in marriage. So there's some surrender. I'm taking care of my wife. I'm taking care of my husband. I'm taking care of the children. They have a legitimate business. They're doing some kind of sacrifice which then earns them the right to get enjoyment. That's the way everything functions. If you want some pleasure, you have to sacrifice for it. Now, of course, if you're really in the mode of passion, you'll understand what is the proper sacrifice. So people nowadays, they don't really understand their passions are mixed with ignorance. But if you're really in the mode of passion, you understand, okay, I want to enjoy intellectual pleasure, so I preach the truth for the benefit of the people. I want to enjoy the pleasure of taking care of people and being honored and respected, so I undergo the sacrifice of running the government and taking care of the people, providing them what they need. I want to enjoy the pleasure of great wealth. I undergo the sacrifice of taking care of the earth, taking care of the cows, earning honest wealth. I want to enjoy the pleasure of creating beauty, creating functionality and service for society, so I undergo the sacrifice of having all the beauty and function in society remind people 
of spirituality. Now, I want to abandon the ashrams, I want the pleasure of freedom, so I undergo the sacrifice of simplicity and renunciation. I want the pleasure of sense gratification, I want the pleasure of sex and money and home, I undergo the sacrifice of taking care of a family. So people in the higher modes of passion, they understand what is the requisite sacrifice that fits the pleasure I want to get. So today, people again don't understand that. They think if I want to enjoy freedom, it means I just don't get married and I have my own job and I have my own house and I have a string of boyfriends or girlfriends and I don't take responsibility. So, you know, people don't really get what is the proper sacrifice. They think if I want to enjoy wealth, then I just simply exploit the land and I exploit the cows and I create false wealth that are just numbers on the computer. You know, they don't, they don't really get how to do sacrifice. But that is happiness in the mode of passion. And there, there is some happiness. There is some happiness because you're starting to understand this principle of sharnam, of sacrifice. You're starting to understand that happiness comes by giving, that happiness comes by getting me out of the center, that happiness comes by being part of a greater whole and serving the greater whole. And, and everyone experiences this, unless they're totally in the mode of ignorance, that I get more happiness by giving than by receiving. Right? Like yesterday we did a program at Soho, and, and afterwards we gave a birthday present to one of our good friends, and everybody was singing to her in the whole crowd. And I thought, you know, I'm so much happier giving her a gift than if I were to use that same gift for myself. You know, to give her some sweets from the deities here was much happier than if I just stayed in my own room like a little squirrel eating the sweets. You know, this principle of giving to others is greater happiness. This is understood in the mode of passion. And what is, it, what is the happiness that one's enjoying in the mode of passion, of course? The happiness that one's enjoying, although it is happiness, is, is very meager. Because it's almost exclusively on the platform of the body and the mind. That's pretty much where it is. So you're enjoying, Bhakti Nautakura talks about three levels of rasa, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And he calls physical rasa, earth rasa, emotional rasa, heavenly rasa, and spiritual, Vaikuntha rasa. So in the mode of passion, you're mostly getting physical, and you may get some emotional. So in the mode of passion, you know, you're eating good food, and you have some nice sex life, and some nice home, and you're getting the praise and honor of society, which is what's really important to those in the mode of passion. So in the mode of passion, their, their happiness is really, do you see how good I am? Do you notice how righteous I am? You know, is my name going to be in the history books? And are, are you watching me? So that's very much the happiness in the mode of passion. You know, I'm a big, important person. I'm such a charitable person. I'm such a giving person. I'm such a good person. Hey, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me. See what a wonderful spouse I have, what wonderful children I have, what a beautiful house I have, what a nice car I have, and see all the good that I'm doing for society. So this happiness, Shiva Prabhupada calls, is as another side of suffering. Happiness in the mode of ignorance is simply suffering. It just, it just isn't happiness at all. But happiness in the mode of passion is another side of suffering. So why is that? Because the sacrifice you perform in the mode of passion is miserable. This is why Krishna says this happiness is mixed happiness and distress. When you're doing your sacrifice, you don't really enjoy it. And you don't really enjoy it. You don't really enjoy your commute to work. You don't really enjoy working. But you get to enjoy the money that you honestly earn. 
So your sacrifice, it's genuinely a sacrifice. But your happiness gets to be some genuine happiness. But you have to earn it by suffering. And then, of course, the result of your happiness in the mode of passion is also eventually suffering. Because what are you doing? You're serving a body that's full of what? Disease and nastiness. And it becomes old and it dies. And you start seeing that everyone else is also really interested in themselves. That even though in the mode of passion you're getting happiness by sacrificing for others, you're sacrificing for others with the goal of enjoying for yourself. You're still very me-centered. So you're thinking, you know, I'll please my wife and buy her a diamond bracelet so that she'll give me what I want. Have you ever seen any of the adverts for jewelry? It's very much like that. Do this and the person will give you what you want. Please your boss and they'll give you a raise. I please the government and they'll give you some honor. It all becomes still, what is it about for me? So in happiness in the mode of passion, you start realizing that everyone else is like that too. That you thought your husband was trying to please you, but actually was trying to please himself. You thought your wife was trying to please you, but actually she's just trying to please herself. You thought the business you work for was trying to please you, but actually they're just trying to please themselves. And you start seeing that although people are giving to you, they're giving to you with a motive. Just like you're giving to them with a motive. And one starts to see the world as this sort of what we call dog-eat-dog. You know, the rat race. As Prabhupada says in the 20th chapter of Krishna book, you see the world as a very aggressive place. And so you become very unhappy. You know, you start off with this idea that, well, actually, everybody loves me and everyone's trying to serve me and everyone's trying to make me happy, so I'll also give them something and this way I'll be able to become happy. And you realize that that's not what's going on at all. That everybody's simply calculating, how can I get everything on sale? How can I do the least amount of sacrifice and get the most amount of pleasure? And everyone's trying to do that, and it's a constant competition. And so you become very disappointed. You become very disappointed. And also it's another side of suffering because it's all temporary. All the things one accumulates with great endeavor are simply taken away by others. So all this sacrifice, all this sacrifice, all this sacrifice, and at the end, what do you have? Nothing. At the end, you have nothing. Come into the world naked, leave the world naked. You have nothing. You've accumulated all this money. And when you leave, you can't take it with you. Right? You've accumulated all these relationships and all this knowledge and all, all these things. You know, all my knowledge will make me happy. All my associates and my, my relationships, my house, my, my accolades. And Prabhupada talked about how one astrologer had told him that the president of one European com- country after dying had become a dog. You know, so if you become a dog, what did all that do for you? Your statue's up in the park and you just go and urinate on your own statue. You know, I mean, what good does it do you? And, and therefore people become also just suffering. It's all, it's all temporary. and You don't even have to wait until death. How many of our things get taken away before death? You know, our favorite phone gets stolen... Our favorite boots wear out. The person we think that who loves us leaves us for somebody else. 
right? The persons who praise you then turn around and criticize you. I just received one of those thankfully occasional emails. Thankfully, I don't get them very much. But one devotee sent me this email. Please go to this website where I am thoroughly criticizing our GBC and revealing what a scoundrel he is. Wow. I thought this is the nature of the world. Right? One day people are praising you and the next day they're criticizing you. One day they're putting something up, see how wonderful this person is, see how wonderful they are, and then immediately... Oh, everybody, look, it's all this person's faults, real or imagined. And so in the mode of passion, one becomes very unhappy. The fame can turn to infamy. And the, the pleasures turn to distress. And if you live long enough, the body's not able to enjoy anymore. Right? Like the, there was a time I didn't need any glasses. I could just see. I could just read and you know, look anywhere, and it just worked. The eyes just worked, and I didn't even think about that they were working, you know. Now I have to get these glasses that try to imitate good vision, and then you have to, okay, I have to look here for here and here. I'm looking over there. It doesn't work so well anymore. And if all your happiness is on the platform of this body, then when you can't enjoy this body so well anymore, and my dear friends, that will most likely happen if you live long enough. If you die early, then you lament that you're dying so young and you didn't get to enjoy life. And if you live long enough, then you just can't have those pleasures anymore. It just doesn't work. You know, you try to eat the rich food and then just simply you get a stomachache. You can't digest it. So it's another side of suffering. It's all based on something external. And then happiness and ignorance and passion is also another side of suffering because it doesn't touch the soul at all. It's all superficial. It's something like having a very clean car. You know, but you're dirty. Or if, you, you know, if you're filthy dirty, you've been out working in the garden, you're all sweaty, you're all dirty, and without bathing, you put on clean clothes. So material happiness is all like that. It's, it's just touching the body and the mind. It's not touching the self. It's compared to happiness in a dream. Like you have a dream and you're eating very nice food in your dream. Right? I've given this example before that one day when I was fasting, I was very tired, I took a little rest, and in my dream, I dreamt that I was eating. And I was eating this, oh, it's a nice feast I was eating in my dream. I remember I was eating pakoras. And I was doing a near gel, so I was also drinking. I had a, a big jug, a big gallon jug of water in my dream, and I was pouring a cup of water and drinking it, and pouring another cup of water and drinking it, another cup of water and drinking it. And at one point in my dream, I thought, how come I'm so thirsty? And I took the whole jug in my dream and started trying to drink out of the whole jug. And, I, and in my dream, I started thinking, what's wrong? I still feel so hungry and thirsty. And then I woke up, and when I woke up, I thought, oh, it's dream water. So all happiness in the mode of ignorance and passion, it's all dream water. And that's why, it's again, another side of suffering. You get it, 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 and you're like, I'm still not satisfied. I'm just still not satisfied. You know, it was one of the biggest songs, right? I can't get no satisfaction. Who was singing that song? Somebody who was very rich and very famous, had more women than he knew what to do with, 
And still he's saying, I can't be satisfied because it's dream water. You know, so you get the degree, you put it up on your wall, and you have the Jaguar and the BMW, maybe even have a Rolls Royce in your garage, you know, in this beautiful house that's rivaling Buckingham Palace, and a beautiful spouse, and wonderful children, and a dog, and a big flat screen TV, and you know, everything. Prestigious job, and lots of money in the bank, and you say, is that all there is? And a lot of people who get all those things become alcoholics drug addicts commit suicide. Because they get all those things and it's just dream water. It's just dream food. Okay, that's happiness in the mode of passion and happiness in the mode of goodness is different. Happiness in the mode of goodness is much more on the subtle platform and it's getting much closer to real happiness. Happiness in the mode of goodness is things like equanimity, forgiveness, tolerance, cleanliness. It's an internal state. Right? In the mode of passion and ignorance, in both of those modes, you're really thinking about me and what can I get from me, either by stealing it or by paying for it. But in goodness, one is thinking, how can I be imbalanced? So you're more understanding this sharanam principle of surrender. Let me be in balance with the earth. Let me be in balance with my body. Let me be in harmony with the world. Let it not all be about me. Of course, even in the moment of goodness, it's still about let me be in balance. Let me be in harmony. Let me be forgiving. In the mode of ignorance, you're taking happiness by insulting others. In the mode of passion, you're taking happiness by forgiving so you can think, I am such a forgiving person. See? See? Hey, see how forgiving I am? And in the mode of goodness, you're thinking, I'm a forgiving person because I want to be in balance. I'm a forgiving person because it's the right thing to do. Whether anyone notices or not isn't important. It's the way I can be in balance. So you're really in this mood of surrender. You're really in this mood of giving, but still for yourself. So in the mode of goodness, one starts tasting something that is something close to spiritual happiness. It starts being on the verge. It's still superficial. It's still on the platform of the mind. It's not touching the soul. But it's starting to be close. And therefore, in the mode of goodness, you start to get real knowledge. You start to see, ah, this is what will make me happy, and this is what will make me unhappy. In ignorance, you just see completely opposite. You look at, at real happiness, and you go, why would I want to be forgiving? Why would I want to be sacrificing? Why would I want to be austere? It doesn't look like happiness. In the mode of passion, you see, okay, okay, if I'm forgiving and I'm austere, I'll get my sense gratification later to a better degree. You're using it as a means to an end. So in passion, sometimes you get what will bring your happiness and sometimes not. So in the mode of ignorance, you make all bad decisions. In the mode of passion, you make some good decisions. In the mode of goodness, you make all good decisions. You can see, ah, this is what's good for me. These are some of the main questions devotees ask. What should I do? Should I do this thing or that thing? Should I get married or not? Should I live here or not? Should I do this service or not? Should I go to this place or not? Should I do this variety of service? How should I earn my money? What should I do? What should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And as soon as you're in Safagun, you don't have to ask those questions anymore. You just know. You just automatically know. 
Because inside of a boon, you have knowledge. You know what is binding, what is liberating, what will bring me happiness, what will bring me distress, what is good, what is bad. And at least most of the time, because it's not pure suffer, you choose the right thing. So most of the time, you're happy. Although it seems to someone in passionate ignorance that someone in the mode of goodness is only sacrificing. That's what it looks like to them. It looks like such a person is only giving because the mood in goodness is just give, give, balance, balance, balance. A person in goodness understands that by giving, I become happy. And of course, ultimately in goodness, one thinks I'm going to merge with the Brahman. I'm going to become one. I'm going to see the oneness everywhere. Vijayavanaya Sampane Brahmani Yogyasani Sunichayvasu Pantitasamadarshinaha. But even those in goodness may not understand what is spiritual happiness and may still be invisible to them. And we see this a lot of times in our preaching. We see that although people in Satvagun are often very attracted to Krishna consciousness, right? You go to like some of these yoga groups. And these people, you know, they're vegans and they're practicing yoga and they're really into harmony and fearlessness and peace and equanimity and balance. Many times when you talk to those people about the God as a person and spiritual happiness, they can't understand what you're saying. They, they don't see, it doesn't make any sense to them. It's invisible. And happiness in the mode of goodness also is temporary. And it leaves one just to burst, as Prabhupada says, as a philosopher or as a poet, or if you're really in the mode of goodness, to the demigod life. And it still isn't touching the real self. It's still dream food. It's still dream water. It's not really touching the soul. So those who are really intelligent, right? those who are really intelligent, those who are really intelligent, they can go beyond the mode of goodness and see not only what is binding, what is liberating, what is good, what is bad, but they see there's another kind of happiness entirely that's of a completely different nature. Completely different nature. It's nothing like the happiness in ignorance, passion, goodness. It's just totally, totally different. Well, one way it's totally different is it's not me-centered at all. It's not about pleasing me. It's about pleasing my source, Krishna. And it's not about pleasing Krishna so I can get something from Krishna. That's going to be in goodness or passion. But it's about pleasing Krishna just because I love him. Without thinking about what am I going to get back. And because I'm part of Krishna, when I please Krishna, I am naturally pleased. Therefore, we have this word, uh, atush, to be pleased. Right? We have actually two here. We have tush and we have atoshyat and astushita. How Lord Shiva is very easily pleased. So this spiritual happiness comes from pleasing Krishna, which also pleases the self. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Atma Tushta, one is satisfied in oneself. And he talks about Atma Rama. We've all heard this word, Atma Rama. What does that mean? Yourself is happy in yourself. And the irony of spiritual happiness 
is when you forget about your own happiness completely, you get your own happiness completely. And as we can see in the modes, the more you're thinking about your happiness, the less you get. To the point that when all you think about is your own happiness, and you don't care one thing about anyone else's happiness, you get no happiness at all. Therefore, Jesus says those who seek it to find their life will lose it, and those who try to find their life for my those who lose their life for my sake will find it. It's, it's opposite to what we think, which is why it's invisible to the materialists. And they don't even try for it. It doesn't seem to them like it exists. You know, Prahlad Maharaj said, we're all naturally happy, but as soon as you look for happiness, your suffering begins. But to a materialistic person, it's not even on the radar. Well, if I want to become happy, don't I have to try to become happy? What do you mean I'm going to try to become happy by giving up the search for happiness? That doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. They think it's madness. Right? What's day for one is night for the other. They just they look at us and they say, you know, you must be brainwashed by some sort of evil cult leader who wants to take everything from you because why else would you voluntarily give up your own happiness just to serve the deities? How could you, an intelligent, educated person, say instead of keeping, you know, buying flowers from my room, I'm going to buy flowers for Radhakulananda? Why would you want to do that? Why would you give up some cushy office job to go out on the cold London streets and sell books to people who most of them just walk past you? Why would you do that? They they can't fathom it. But real spiritual happiness is love. And we see even going up through the modes, one gets more happiness when one sacrifices. The more one gives, the happier one becomes. And the ultimate happiness comes from the ultimate giving. And the ultimate giving is only done in love. There's no ultimate giving done in anything else but love. Because this ultimate giving is voluntary. It's not a forced thing. It's not, you know, it's giving. I give myself, Atmani Vedanam, out of love. And when I give everything to Krishna, I find because he's my source, and because he's also giving everything to me, that I have much more than what I've given. You know, Sudama Brahmana gave a little few grains of, of low-class rice and got a palace. The fruit seller gave a handful of fruit and got a basket full of jewels. So one finds spiritually that when I give everything to Krishna, Krishna also gives everything to me. Because not only is it that I'm loving Krishna, Krishna is loving me. This is saying, Don't worry. Don't worry. If you give everything to me, I'm going to give you freedom from all the things that are causing you suffering. I'm going to give you freedom from all the difficulty. Master John, don't have any fear. You're not getting something temporary. You're getting something that's eternal. So if we can even understand theoretically that this is happiness, then the place to get it is, of course, our source, Krishna. We're not going to get this happiness from somebody else. Now those who want material happiness, they often don't even go to Krishna. Like here they go to Lord Shiva, because they'll figure Lord Shiva will give me what I want very quickly. What is this very quickly? Very quickly means with the least amount of sacrifice possible. 
right? Because someone in the modes, they're thinking, I want to get on sale, right? I want to get something on sale. We all get very happy when we get something on sale. So mode of ignorance, you want to steal, right? The mode of passion and goodness, you're paying, but you want to get it on sale. So if someone looking for material happiness, they're always looking for the quickest, easiest way. How can I do the least amount of yagya and still become, get the happiness that I want? One of my god brothers who's an expert in deity worship, he says generally whenever people uh, get deities and they ask him how do I worship, they always say, what's the minimum standard? What's the minimum that I have to do? And, and devotees ask this sort of question all the time. You know, what's the trick? What's the secret? What's the little secret thing I can find out to instantly chant pure japa and instantly surrender? You know, give it to me fast, give me something fast and easy where I don't really have to do any kind of surrender. I can just, you know, push the bliss button. Right? You're, you're talking yesterday how instead of books now I have an e-reader. And the e when I got this e-reader, when I first ordered a book online, you know, you already have all your information entered online. And all you have to do, you just click one button online. You just go on the internet, you click one button. Or you can even do it on your device. And within three seconds, actually three seconds, the book's on your device. You know, it's so much fun, you want to buy another book just to see it pop up on your device right away. It's something like Prakti City, you know. <laughs> Give me a mango. You know, okay, I want this book. Whoop. There it is in your hand, you know. It's like, wow, <laughs> I'm missing power through technology. So we're thinking that I want bhakti like that. You know, I want some, some just, ah, you know, show up in the hand. So therefore, people who want material happiness, they're looking, who can be satisfied very quickly? Who can I go to who will give me this materialist very quickly with the lowest payment? But the devotees don't think like that. Just like Mukunda, when Mahaprabhu was giving out benedictions, that would be nice, huh? Suppose that he went, hey, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he's fully manifesting himself on the altar for the next 21 hours, and he's willing to give anybody whatever they want. Hurry, 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 come in the temple room. You know, so everybody went to see Mahaprabhu, and they're asking for whatever they want. Of course, most of them, they were asking for prema. Please, can I have prema? Or please, can you give prema to my auntie or something like that? And then the devotees said, what about Mukunda? And Mahaprabhu said, I don't want to see Mukunda. He pretends to be a devotee and then he hangs out with the Maya bodies. Yeah. So they went and told Mukunda, the Lord is not going to see you. And he asked, will he ever see me? He told Mahaprabhu, will you ever see him? And he said, yes, after 10 million births. They went out and gave the answer after 10 million births. So did Mukunda say, oh, forget this. Let me just go to Lord Shiva, he's Ashutosh. Yeah, I'll get it fast. <laughs> He started dancing. He said, 10 million verse, 10 million verse, 10 million verse. And they went back and told Mahaprabhu, Mukunda's dancing. He said, I'll finally get to see the Lord after 10 million verse. And Mahaprabhu said, okay, bring it <laughs> So this is the view of the devotee. The view of the devotee is, I will undergo whatever is necessary for as long as necessary. Rukmini, she writes this letter to Krishna, please come and kidnap me. And she says, if you don't come and kidnap me, I am willing to do austerities life after life after life until you finally accept me. So this is, of course, practical humility. You know, we have this idea of humility. Just being, I'm so fallen from me. But practical humility is, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, or however long it takes. I'm willing to be patient. 
until that, you know, I finally can give up all of my envy and come to real love and total giving and love. And when I come to total giving and love, I will finally get the happiness that gives me satisfaction. And ironically, at that point, I won't care about it anymore. When one finally gets this full happiness, it gives one complete satisfaction eternally. That keeps increasing and increasing and increasing. By that point, the person doesn't even care about it anymore. They're so naturally happy, and they're so naturally full of satisfaction, they're so naturally feeling complete, that they've long ago forgotten that I started this journey looking for my own satisfaction. It becomes irrelevant. One's satisfaction is so great, and so oceanic, and so ananda buddhibhardhanam, so expanding, that it, it, it's, it's not even an item on the table. It's completely out of one's consciousness. One's happiness is just there, a diabuck, as one's constitutional position. One no longer becomes a happiness-seeking person. One becomes such a naturally happiness-enjoying person. And the sacrifice sacrifices that one is making to Krishna out of love are one's happiness. There's no sacrifices at all for Bhagavad Gita 424. It all merges into transcendence. So we are very fortunate that Jiva Prabhupada has made visible the invisible ink on the menu. We are very fortunate. Jiva Prabhupada has made visible. There's happiness in the mode of ignorance, passion, goodness, and then there's real happiness. This is what's available. And this real happiness is available in Vaikuntha, in Ayodhya, in Dwarka, in Vrindavan. Srila Prabhupada has revealed to us by the grace of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu everything that's available to get. And Srila Prabhupada has revealed to us how to get it. So then it just becomes a matter for ourselves. How will I find happiness and where will I go to get it? And remember, this is something we are doing at every moment. I recently heard Srila Prabhupada say, Krishna is giving us the choice 24 hours a day. It's not that we just have certain choice points in our life. But constantly we are choosing, what am I going to do to become happy? And where am I going to go to get it? So thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I, time maybe for one or two questions or comments. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Uh, it was just uh, toward the end you were saying that Krishna says, don't worry, don't fear, just abandon, and I'll, I'll take care of everything. And then we just heard a few um, translations previous. Mother uh, Ganga is afraid and she's worried about sinful reactions. Um, on the one hand, we're hearing pure devotees are going to bathe in her and I think what she's actually afraid of is displeasing Krishna. Not that she's afraid of her personal suffering. It's, it's the duty of Mother Ganga to keep herself very pure for Krishna's pleasure. That's her business. You know, all of us should be afraid of illusion and bad association. That, that's not really a fear like material fear. You know, materially we're afraid of sinful reactions because it causes our suffering. All of our suffering is due to sinful reactions. You know that, right? It's not really due to the fact that, you know, your husband is crabby. It's really due to our own sinful reactions. So we're very afraid of our sinful reactions. 
You know, we're not afraid of doing the sins, but we're afraid of the sinful reactions. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but the devotees, they're not afraid of their own personal suffering. It's something like, you know, when you're offering food to the Lord, you want to make sure all the ingredients are pure, yes? Right? You're careful when you buy something from the shop, you look at the ingredients, what's in this thing that I'm offering. You don't want to offer something that's contaminated. So we're also offering ourselves. We want to offer something that's pure. So we're afraid of being in a situation where we become contaminated and we won't be fit to offer to the Lord. So Kanga was worried. You know, when I come to the earth, people will bathe in me and I'll become impure. I won't be able to do my service properly for the Lord. I'm sure that Kanga and Jamuna right now are very distressed. The Jamuna is being diverted. Something like when the gopis are kept in their homes and they can't go to the Rasalila. So the demons are, are captured the Jamuna. And they're not allowing the Jamuna to go to Vrindavan. And instead they're surrounding Vrindavan with Delhi sewer water. Pretty intense. Yes, sir. You're speaking very extensively about how one enjoys by sacrifice. Yes. Krishna says he enjoys all sacrifices. So how is Krishna enjoying the gentleman going on the tube to his place of work? Because ah. Krishna says, tapasam. I am the enjoyer of all sacrifices. How is Krishna enjoying somebody going on the tube to work? No, it's, it said that Krishna is meant to enjoy all sacrifices. So he, he is the rightful enjoyer of sacrifices. So going on the tube on the way to work is a sacrifice that is meant to be offered to that's, that's, that's its function. And the person is intentionally withholding that and saying, no, I'm going to enjoy this for myself. It's like all the food cooked in the rich man's house is meant to be offered to the rich man and his family. Now, of course, the rich man and his family also give that very same food to the servants. I mean, unless he's really evil. But most wealthy people, the servants, eat the same food that the rich person eats. They just eat it later and in another place. But if one of the servants thinks, oh, let me cook for myself, let me go in the rich man's kitchen and let me take all this fancy food and cook something for myself on the side that I don't give to the rich man. So that's improper. Therefore, Krishna says that those who eat food for personal sense enjoyment verily eat only sin. So any sacrifice that we're doing that we're not offering to Krishna, we're stealing. Now, if a person is going on the tube to work, but he's thinking, I'm doing this because I want to be a good person and I want to do a righteous, be a righteous person, I want to be an honest citizen, I'm going to pay my taxes to the government, because the government is a representative of God. So, to some extent, indirectly, it's being offered to God. Okay, I'm going to follow the rules of God. But that's Roger Burton. I'm going to follow the rules of God. I'm going to go on the tube to work so I can maintain my family. And that's one of the rules of God. You know, if you want to enjoy your senses, you have to enter into the Grahasashram and be a, a proper person in society. You can't just enjoy your senses and not go in the Grahasashram. So if a person is going on the tube to work because they want to do the right thing, they want to be a good, honest person and serve their family and serve the government in uh, some extent. 
there's something by which they're offering it to Krishna indirectly. Like if you offer it to the demigods, you're offering it to Krishna indirectly. Therefore, they get to have some pleasure, some legitimate pleasure. They've earned some legitimate pleasure. Now, in the mode of goodness, they're going in the tube to work because they're saying, this is the way that I can function in my proper place in the universe. This is how I can fit in the universe. This is how I become part of the whole. So then they're sacrificing to the universal form. Prabhupada nicely explains this in a book he wrote uh, in India before coming to America on uh, Ramanan's Asambada, where he talks about Varnashram. And he says that the idea of Varnashram is you're part of the universal body. So you're sacrificing, the materialistic Varnashram, you're sacrificing to the universal body. And if you're in Bhakti, you're going on the tube on the way to work to make Krishna happy. You're thinking, you know, I'm just trying to, how can I spread love of God while I'm on the tube? How can I spread love of God at work? How can I spread love of God in my family? I'm on a mission. But I don't understand that as meaning that Krishna actually enjoys everybody's sacrifice. But I understand that to mean that Krishna is meant to be the enjoyer of everybody's sacrifice. And if you don't have Krishna as the enjoyer of your sacrifice, then you're, you're miserable. It's something like the mouth is meant to be the enjoyer of food. Now, if you take the food and rub it on your hair, you know, my daughter did that when she was an infant. Every time she ate, when she was a little baby, you know, she put one bite in her mouth and then whatever food was left on her hand, she would rub it on her hair like it was a napkin. Every time after I fed her, I had to shampoo her hair. So the, the stomach isn't enjoying that food. The food that you're rubbing on your hair, you know, that doesn't, the stomach does not get any pleasure from that. It doesn't, the body doesn't get any benefit from that. It's, it's useless. Any sacrifice done without faith in the Supreme is just useless. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't really help you. It doesn't help anyone. It's not, it's, I mean, it's still part of the cycle of everything. No energy is lost, but it, it doesn't produce any benefit. It's, it's just wasted. Is that hard? Yes? I have a doubt. Okay. I thought you were saying two reasons. All right. There's a part of that book where Prabhupada says that Krishna enjoys the activity of the living entity. And also the verse itself says that Krishna controls everything everywhere. There's nothing he doesn't control. He said he's a every living entity. There's not a single living entity that he doesn't control. So... The verse suggests in the same way that he's enjoying every single thing that anyone ever does. So, the way you explained it, which is the general way of being explained, it suggests there's part of this creation that's going on that Krishna's not enjoying. Therefore, I have a doubt. There's part of this creation that Krishna's not enjoying. Alright, but now you're going to get into some really subtle esoteric stuff. Is that alright? Yeah. Any of you who don't like subtle esoteric stuff, you can just go take the prasadam, which is much more easily relishable. Oh. <laughs> And so this is also described that the demigods are enjoying uh, through the cups of the senses of the living entities, that anything the living entities enjoy, the demigods also enjoy. This is explained in Lord Brahma's prayers in the 14th chapter of the 10th canto. So you could say that Krishna is enjoying, let's look at that first and then it being the controller. You could say Krishna is enjoying in, in one sense, because Srila Prabhupada explains extensively in the nectar devotion, in his not in the nectar devotion itself, although a little bit in the preface, but in Prabhupada's lectures he gives on the nectar devotion, that everything everyone is doing is to try to enjoy rasa. That everyone's action is trying to enjoy one of the twelve rasas. 
So we could have today, instead of looking at passion, goodness, passion, ignorance, passion, goodness, and transcendence, we could have looked at the 12 Russes. We could have had that as our frame. And Chief Prabhupada was saying in one of these lectures that even the murderer, what is the murderer trying to enjoy? Which rasa? The ghastly rasa. And Prabhupada says, if you really want to enjoy the ghastly rasa properly, how do you do that? Who do you worship? Singadev. So this is coming from the principle that George Harrison said, that everyone's looking for Krishna. Some just don't know that they're looking for Krishna. So everyone is trying to enjoy some kind of rasa. It's what's motivating everyone's action. And everyone is enjoying some kind of rasa. So you could say that the demigods and Krishna himself, through the cups of the senses of the living entities, are also actually enjoying that rasa. But Krishna, of course, is enjoying it in a pure form rather than in a perverted form. So in that sense, you could say that Krishna is getting pleasure from anything that anybody's doing. Now, as far as Krishna controlling everything, it's not that Krishna's, you know, saying, okay, you have to rape, you have to murder, you have to steal, and you're just some sort of puppet, and that Krishna's making you do all these terrible things, and then Krishna's enjoying it. That would be a pretty awful view of God. Who would want to serve such a God? And that Krishna's just sort of deciding whimsically, okay, you know, you get unlimited transcendental bliss, and you get just misery in the mode of ignorance, but I'm going to enjoy all the things you're doing. You know, so that, that's, that's not a loving, that wouldn't be the friend. That, would, that view would contradict the Suradam Sarvamutanam. If Krishna's the friend of all living entities, then he wants to act for our benefit. And therefore Krishna would never, ever want any of us to be in any position of transcendental bliss. If you're somebody's friend, why would you want them to have anything but the best? So Krishna's controlling everything in the sense that if you want something that's not the best, that's also under Krishna's control. You can't even be in the mode of ignorance without Krishna's sanction and without Krishna's energy. I find it fascinating in the Chaitra Shloka of the Bhagavatam when the definition of maya, whatever appears to be a value that's without relation to me has no reality, know it to be my illusory energy, that reflection which appears to be in darkness. So the ability to try to enjoy an illusion, which is not enjoyment at all, the ability to go for that, that energy that allows us to do that, is also Krishna's energy. We cannot even be an illusion without Krishna's energy. And it's Krishna's energy that's facilitating the illusion. Something like, something like, if you have a, a child, you know, a teenage child, and instead of wanting to help out the family, they want to play video games. Instead of wanting to help with the cleaning and the cooking, and you know, they just want to play video games. And they're really insistent about it. So if you decide, okay, you know, whatever, four hours a day, six hours a day, you can play video games. And the parents get the computer, and they provide the desk, and they provide the chair. Even if you get a job, you're still living at home, your parents allow you to get a job. Your parents facilitate you getting a job, or maybe they even give you some allowance money to buy the computer. Right? They provide you lectures. They're providing everything. If they weren't providing everything, you couldn't do it. They're facilitating it. So they're facilitating your illusion. So Krishna does like that. He says, you know, yeah, okay, you really, really want 
to have illusory enjoyment, you really want to have a virtual reality, okay, here's the program, you know, here's the, the video game, because all of mine is just like a big video game. You know, here's the video game, you got to pay for it, you got to do some karma to earn it, you know, if you want to move up to higher levels, you have to pay for it. You have to earn it. These are the rules of the game. The rules are going to be strictly enforced. There's not going to be any leeway. doesn't matter what you do, what you pray. You know, it doesn't matter. These are the rules. Do this, you'll get this result. You do this, you get this result. And you can pretend you're somebody else, and you can create a false identity, and this is what it is. And then at a certain point, Buddha, 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 game over. Game over, okay. Put your toys away. Go into the body of Mahavishnu and just sleep for a while. Enough of this, he says in the fifth canto, that Ananta gets, uh, gets very angry and just burns everything down. All right, all right, all right, we'll do it again. Here we go, I'll do it again. Here's your video game. And it's all being controlled by Krishna. That doesn't mean that Krishna is forcing the living entity to behave in a certain way. It just means that if you want to play the game, then he's in charge of the rules of the game. And he's controlling the game, and you have to play by his rules. Is that all right? Not. not sure. You're not sure. What are you still not sure about? Yeah, my, my life doesn't come on. I'm hearing what you're saying. When you, when you were talking before about the demigods, that was kind of big. I was feeling some relief with that kind of line of understanding. But then you went into it to control it. I still haven't my... I'm still seeing this issue about Krishna enjoying everything. What's not fitting? I think the, the explanation how Krishna is enjoying you going to the to, again the simple thing. Somehow or other, the way the way I the way I'm seeing Prabhupada saying this that Krishna enjoying the activities of the living entity suggests it is as it is. All the, all the words are wrong. So somehow or other. But what is he enjoying in the activities of the living entities? Well, that's my question. What is it that's enjoyable in the activities of a living entity and illusion? What is enjoyable to enjoy? If I can answer that, I would ask you the question. I'd say what's enjoyable to enjoy is that the living entity is looking for rasa. And I'll tell you how you like can turn on with this, is you can do it yourself. Because we're all a part of Krishna. We can also enjoy the activities of all living entities in the same way. And I was uh, taught to do this, in fact, in a seminar given in Croatia by His Holiness Spirit Krishna Swami. So he was giving some seminars in empathic communication. And pretty much just out of respect for him, I attended part one. And it was nice and it was useful. And then the next summer I went again and he was giving part two. And after the first or second day of it, I said, Maharaj, why do you teach this? What is the benefit? And he said, the benefit is at the end of the day of counseling people with problems, you can feel energized instead of exhausted. And I'm like, wow, I want that. Right, we were just talking to a gentleman in margin. He was saying how he was in this one country where he was just counseling people all day. And at the end, he couldn't even sleep. He just you know, had to get some relief. So I thought, okay, how do you do that? So what I learned how to do, and it's not that I do it all the time, but what I learned how to do is that you find what rasa the person is actually looking for. So the person may come to you in all kinds of grief and confusion and suffering and 
that a mess. People can come to you just completely a mess. But you look under there and you see what rasa are they looking for. How are they looking for Krishna? Are they looking for peace? Are they looking for happiness? Are they looking for excitement? Are they looking for love? Are they looking for fear? Are they looking for ghastliness? Are they looking for wonder? Are they looking for friendship? What combination of these? And you, you start, as you, as you go in that direction, as you, you, as you bend your consciousness to that direction, you no longer hear and experience their suffering at all. You start to experience it. What's under that suffering is an undemanding ascent. It's the search for pleasure, for real pleasure. And you start getting an incredible amount of pleasure by connecting with that. You start connecting soul to soul. You start hearing the cry of the soul underneath all of this other stuff. You know, my wife cheated on me, I don't have any money, um, someone complained to my guru about me, and now I can't trust him anymore, I don't get any happiness to my childhood stuff with it. And you, you get under the end, you, you touch the Anandamaya side of the soul. And you get this connection, as Prabhupada says, soul to soul via the super soul. And then whether you can help them or not, sometimes you can help them, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can help them completely, sometimes you can help them partially, sometimes you can't help them at all. As far as your experience, it doesn't matter. Your experience is that I'm pleasing Krishna by being available to this living entity, and therefore you're enjoying that relationship with living entity. You're not enjoying their suffering in a sadistic sense. It's not like you're all good, you're suffering. It's not that you're enjoying your suffering. But you're connecting with their primal urges that are unfortunately driving them to get them done in the wrong way. But you're, you're connecting with the root. And that's extremely pleasurable. Extremely. You could say, you could call that compassion. But please don't think that it's compassion in some sort of a sentimental sense, like somebody watches a video of, you know, dying puppies and starts crying. It's not like that. It's, it's more that you really connect with that soul in service to Krishna, and you feel a strong sense of compassion and connection for this soul. This soul is really looking for Krishna. And that's a rasa. And that is great enjoyment. It is incredible enjoyment, and it's incredibly energizing and enlivening. And it's so energizing, and it's so enlivening, and it's so enjoyable that one is willing to undergo what looks like to other people amazing sort of self-effacing sacrifices. Does that make any sense to you? And if it doesn't, try it. Try when you're dealing with other people to look at what's underneath. And, and don't do this with the mind. You can't do it with the mind. It has to be done on the spiritual platform. You cannot work on the platform of the mind. It isn't a mental technique. And it can be taught as a mental technique, but that's not, it's not going to really, that will only get you ultimately to Satvagun. But, you know, Krishna, please, reveal to me what rasa this person is seeking. 
Reveal to me how this person actually wants to find you. Reveal to me this person as, as a soul. Not the body, not the mind, not their drama, not their stories, not all, which is all illusory anyway. But reveal to me this person as a soul and let me connect soul to soul, be the super soul in a way that will please you. Let me please you and, and honor you and glorify you by my dealings with this soul. And let me experience what this person really is looking for and driving it for. And that is amazing. In fact, I would say, at least in my experience, there's nothing more pleasurable than that. There's nothing more pleasurable than to try to connect another living being to Krishna by connecting with them soul to soul, being a super soul. And the externals are just That person may be wrapped up in the externals, but you don't have to be wrapped up in the externals. And that is very different from preaching to someone. In fact, I see no relationship at all between that kind of connection and preaching to someone, what we often think of as. Preaching to someone is usually, I know and you don't, and I'm going to tell you. Which is a very different mentality. So, just to try it. Yes? So, now for a point on this. Oh, yes, please. My, my penny contribution. Um, I, I can understand the, the, the you know, dilemma on this. But in the second canto, they said it may help. Uh, in the second canto, there's something about very interesting purport where Prabhupada says that Krishna feels the transcendental happiness. Uh, of the living entities as a paramatma from the soul directly. Whereas indirectly is also feeling the austerity and the suffering and the enjoyment of the living entities in a conditional life. Oh, and, that is, and that is through the Virat Rupa. It's actually implementation with the Virat Rupa. Oh, that's so, fascinating. So that it may help a little bit, Shyam Sundra, because in that way, Krishna is omniscient. It doesn't just mean only spiritual, but also material. Even material. Because in our bodies, our senses, our intention, due to karma, it's created by the Hira So wherever we enjoyment and austerity that man is going through, the uh, tube, we have to go to one world. Krishna, through the Virat Rupa, is actually uh, feeling that. And that's where, but it's indirectly, of course, Shama Sundara in the spiritual world is not directly involved in the suffering of the people, but through his uh, Virat Rupa, which is not different from. Which makes sense then that Prabhupada said that materialistic Varnashram is that you understand your place in the Virat Rupa and you're trying to serve the Virat Rupa. <laughs> It's just uh, something, you know, that... Uh, Thank you. That's very I 
practices this all the time. If you deal with Kalangan at all, you'll see that she connects soul to soul via the super soul with everyone. She sees the good in everyone. Like this is explained also in the fourth canto, those who see good even when there's no good. That, that she sees everyone as a soul trying to please Krishna and therefore she finds happiness. She does it constantly with everyone all the time. one of the main features you find in your mind. Yes, isn't it? That all she sees is the good in you and all she sees, she, and she, it's not some sort of, you know, mental adjustment. And you feel that she's connecting with that part of you. And if you have any, any spirituality at all, it can even wake up in her association. Yes? And then we have to end it. Uh, yeah. I, I think uh, something came up at the, at the end there. You were drawing a distinction between what you call preaching at people or preaching to people and hearing hearing what's going on for them deep down yes. underneath all this stuff. And it, it occurred to me that I suppose that distinction could be drawn closer, you know, the, uh, the word compassion. The word compassion yes. came up for me. If I'm preaching to someone with compassion, then there won't be such a distinction. That's right. That's, that's beautifully said. And that's, that compassion is one of the rasas, karuna rasa. So certainly Krishna is at least enjoying the karuna rasa in relationship to all of the suffering of the living entities. Shiva Prabhupada, Kijan.